Hear the word of the Lord written in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, I see y'all didn't get the memo. The memo that I'm preaching today. Aren't you wondering why our crowd's down some? Actually, it's, that's part of it. But part of it is a lot of our men are still away on the men's retreat. And most of our, our Medina moms who are in the Kit Together program aren't with us today. So between those three things, it's three strikes and you're out, isn't it? Let's see, they also got a new remote. And I don't know that I have the buttons figured out, but here's where we are. Have you ever noticed that the Bible opens and closes with wedding stories? In Genesis chapter two, God performs a wedding. A wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve in what must have been the most sought after venue in the world at the time, the Garden of Eden. And in the last book of the Bible, almost at the very last of the book, in Revelation 19, we find they're celebrating, well, it's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Listen to this description. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! The Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice, the voices went on to say, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And goes on to say, the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. And then in Revelation, let's see, I should have changed pages there. Revelation 22 and 17, we hear this invitation. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes can take of the free gift of the water of life. There's a wedding waiting for us in heaven, and you're invited. The Word of God opens and closes with wedding stories. Now, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Home Depot, and I want to direct your attention. This, this is a, a warning for not just today, but next week. <laughs> for two weeks, you'll have to listen to me, and I'm going to talk about marriage. 
Um, and today we're going to talk about that first marriage, the one we read about in uh, Genesis. Next week we'll talk about something different, mostly from Ephesians chapter 5 and what God is looking for in a marriage. But today we're going to talk about that opening wedding story. Now I'm not all that interested in weddings. A wedding is an event. It happens and it's over. It takes you a while to pay for it, but it happens and it's over. A marriage, oh, that's an achievement that continues on and on and on. Maybe a good way into the subject today is, let me tell you the story of the lion who went strutting through the jungle bragging about being the king of the beast. Had an ego problem. But he's walking through the jungle, king of the beast, king of the jungle, and he walks up on this mouse, and he roars and says, Who's the king of the jungle? <laughs> the poor little old mouse. You are, Mr. Lion, you are. You're the king of the jungle. Well, that kind of made the lion feel good about himself. So he sought out bigger prey. He went and found an antelope. Who's the king of the jungle? And the antelope traumatizes it. You're, you're, you're the king of the jungle, Mr. Lion. You're the king of the jungle. Well, it keeps on going. For, now he goes to a zebra. Then he goes to a giraffe. Didn't matter how big the animals were, they declared him to be the king of the jungle until he came to a bull elephant. And he came up to that bull elephant and said, Who's the king of the... He didn't even get his whole sentence out before the elephant took one big pot and stomped him. Then reached down with his trunk, picked him up by the neck, and swirled him back over him back behind him where the elephant promptly sat down on top of the lion. Well, it was quiet for a long time. And then this suffocating voice came out from under the elephant that said, well, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> Are you one of the lucky people who's discovered a profound truth we should have known from the beginning, but most of us had to have an encounter with an elephant to figure it out. Are you one of the lucky people who realizes that there are other ways to look at things than your way? There are other ways to understand things and what you've been taught? Have you ever, in the middle of a discussion, maybe even an argument or a heated debate, found yourself, you found yourself in a place where your opponent's argument was making sense to you. And you thought, well, I never thought about it that way. Let me suggest a way to think about marriage. You can go to the internet and find anything you want about marriage. They'll call it what you want to call it. They'll frame it the way you want it framed. They'll say this is good and that. There's no end to the variation. But what does God say about marriage? I think we can look in this text in Genesis and come to, come to some conclusions that might be a little bit different from what you've drawn. And I'm hoping when it's over you may say, hmm, I never thought about it that way. And you've already heard the passage from Genesis chapter 2, but let me give you some background to it. 
In Genesis 1, God creates the world, and he says, that's good. And on the sixth day of creation, he creates the man and the woman, and he says, that's very good. Now, when chapter 2 opens, we learn a little bit more detail about how those things went on. You see, God forms Adam, but before he forms Eve, he puts man in the Garden of Eden, and, and he brings all the animals by to, for man to name. And, and the point is for Adam to see there's nobody else like him. All the creatures came, male and female, except for one, the human, the one made in God's image. There's no female. And that's what moved the Lord to say, it's not good. First thing God ever said wasn't good. It's not good that the man be alone. And so God's going to make a suitable mate for him. And the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs and um, closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord made the woman out of the rib. And then, and then God said, or then the man said, or he brought the woman to the man, and the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. That doesn't sound very romantic, does it? For she was taken out of the man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I want to focus on three phrases in that story that, well, they describe God's idea of marriage. The first phrase is suitable helper. Adam didn't have a suitable helper, so God made him one. And of that suitable helper, Adam said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then God declared, they're going to become one flesh. What do those phrases say to us? Well, the suitable helper is found two times in this chapter. Suitable helper, helper that's suitable. What's a helper? And what makes a helper suitable? I think those are important questions. If we're going to see marriage as God sees marriage. So, helper. Well, if you're in construction terminology. Now, I learned helper in construction terminology. One of my first jobs was to be somebody's helper. And in construction terminology, it really gets us off to a bad start here. On a construction site, you'll have skilled craftsmen, master electricians, journeymen carpenters. But almost all of those guys are assisted by somebody who's called their helper. And you know what? Helpers don't get paid as much as the craftsmen do. You know why? Because they don't know as much. Their knowledge not as knowledgeable. They're not as skilled. Helpers, helpers are learners. Maybe, maybe they're just there to, to be a gopher so that the, the carpenter doesn't have to go back to the truck and get something himself. He can keep working while the helper goes and gets it. That's what I think of when I think of helpers. A helper is not an equal. It's a subordinate. Most certainly couldn't be 
a superior. Well, is that what God meant? When he said, I'm going to give Adam a helper. That Adam's helper would be less skilled, less knowledgeable, subordinate, lower level trainee. Is that how God uses the word? Well, if you just go to the English definition, a helper is someone who assists. And the term describes a role a person plays, not their status, not their value. A helper may be co-equal with the person they're helping. They could even be superior. And a helper might be have, have lesser skills and knowledge. But a helper is someone who comes alongside an individual in a task and assists them. Well, we've got construction terminology. We've got dictionary definition. How's the word used in Hebrew? Well, every time, well, every time. Helper is used 21 times in the Old Testament. And 17 of those times, God is the helper. And in those other cases, usually helpers are military reinforcements. They're backup. Relief shows up. God comes to assist. Maybe that's why in Romans 8 and 26 tells us the Holy Spirit is our help. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. See, unlike in construction terminology where a helper is subordinate, less knowledgeable, inferior, a helper in Scripture is more like a partner. God sees that Adam is alone. He needs some backup. He needs some assistance. So God sends him a helper. Now notice the second phrase, or second term in that phrase, a suitable helper. God gives Adam a helper suitable for him. Well, English translations really wrestle with how do you, how do you, properly communicate what the Hebrews say in here with this word. And the best I can come up with is a helper is complementary. Now, let's do a quick English lesson here, okay? Complementary is not complementary. <laughs> complementary spelled with an I, that's when you compliment somebody. Oh, your blue eyes are so beautiful. That's a compliment. Complimentary spelled with an E is with something that's complimentary in that way fulfills, completes, brings out the whole color of the picture. If we say your outfit complements your blue eyes, we mean it completes the look. It enhances it, rounds it out, brings balance. When two people bring out the best in each other and help make up for the flaws in each other, their relationship is complementary. Well, Bible translations have had little trouble knowing how to put that. If you grew up with a King James Version, you probably remember that term, help meet. God says, I'm going to make a 
help meet for him. Help meet doesn't help me much on knowing what that meat is. But if you break it down, it's a helper who meets the needs of the situation. One who's capable of coming alongside. The New King James Version changes it, though. And God says, I'm going to make a, help, I'm going to make a, a helper comparable to him. Kind of in that same range, that same ballpark. The Bible in basic English puts it this way. Uh, well, I'm going to, let's go to that fourth one. I'm going to make a help meet. It's one like himself. Make one like himself as his helper. Of course, the New Living Translation just says, a helper is going to be one who's just right for him. And we do actually have a newer translation today called the Holman Commentary Study Bible that uses the word compliment. I will make a helper as his compliment. To round out, to balance, to supplement, to complete. A counterpart, so to speak. Now just looking at those words, that phrase, here's what we're being told. God brings into Adam's life someone who is both like him and different. But the similarities and the differences complement each other. Making the pair better together than either one of them would be alone. God's plan for marriage is, is that a person much like us, but very different from us, walks with us, assists us, challenges us, and completes us. And as a person of a different gender, our spouse will be unlike us in many, many basic ways. But we're two individuals, each strong in power, equal in importance, equal in value but incredibly different in complementary ways. So God brings Eve to Adam, and Adam then comes up with our second phrase. He breaks out into poetry. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I like the way the new living trans... I think I didn't put that verse there. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Instead of this is now, they have Adam saying, at last, finally, this is what I've been looking for. What's Adam been doing? He's been naming all the animals. And doesn't see anything like him. Nothing at all. And then God brings this new thing. And Adam says, at last. This is what I want. This is what I need. Adam has searched for one like him. There hasn't been one. And he finds her now. Bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. That, that's poetry. It's a, po a poetic way of saying she's just like me. She's made of the same stuff I'm made of. We belong together. By the way, that phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is used three other times in Scripture. And it's always used to describe close kinship or mutual identification, that the blood is thicker than water kind of thing. When Adam meets Eve, he not only sees her, he knows her. And he not only knows her, he has a clearer knowledge of who and what he is.
See, God's plan for marriage is that two people come together. When they come together, they come to know themselves more completely because they know each other. Okay, one last phrase and I'll hush. And that's that one flesh phrase. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That phrase probably refers to a sexual relationship. But it's more than that. I mean, in Acts 2 and 17, when God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit in all flesh, he wasn't talking about bodies. He was talking about persons. I will pour out my spirit on all persons. When a man and a woman come together as husband and wife, in a way they become one. Marriage puts them in the same space, the same location, the same life path. They hold most things in common. They raise their families together. Two people, alike, but not so alike, put together in a tight location. And the two become one. So God's description for marriage is, well, as the Bible uses the term, a helper is not inferior, not subordinate, not less knowledgeable. A helper in Scripture is more like a partner. And our helper, our spouse, whether well, like us, but they're not like us. And the complementary nature of the relationship makes us richer, fulfills us, completes us. And, and that marriage involves two lives so intertwined and so interdependent that they're more like one than they are two. And so you see, when we get to the end of the Bible, and the book of Revelation invites you to the wedding supper of the Lamb, you're invited to have that kind of relationship with God. Now I have a confession to make. When I started working on these sermons a couple of weeks ago, my plan today was to preach on what, what, um, what men need wives to understand about husbands. Because I thought the guys away on the retreat. Most, a lot of our guys are gone. I can preach to their wives. The wives don't know what I say. I mean, the husbands don't know. The wives probably don't either. But the husbands don't know what I say, so they're not coming back. They're not poking you all through the sermon. <laughs> I thought that would be a good time. I'll do some of that next week. I was going to use the second week to talk about what, what wives wish men knew about wives. But I'm not a wife. And I, I had a little trouble coming up with that one. But we'll talk about that some next week too and base most of it on Ephesians chapter 5. Suffice it to say, men and women are different. And God made it that way. They think differently. Men think in boxes. Have you know? Uh, now this is general. Most men think in boxes. If you want to talk about camping, well, they pull out their camping box and they start taking their little things out. You know, we're talking about camping. If you switch the subject to cars, well, they put that camping box up and they get their car box out. And ladies, I know this is hard for you to believe, but a man actually has a thinking box that has nothing in it. 
If you say to your husband, what are you thinking? And he says, nothing. He's telling you the truth. Men and women think differently. They're different in their approach to problem solving. Again, this is general, but for the most part, men tend to be task-oriented. There's a problem. Find a way to fix it. Completing the task is the primary goal. Don't get in his way. Women tend to be more process-oriented. How you complete the task is every bit as important as completing it. So here you have this situation. She's tuned into the relational side of things. He's tuned into getting a job done. Ladies, if you mention a problem to your man, he's going to offer you solutions. That's not what you want to hear. But he's going to offer you solutions. You know why? Because that's his way of showing you he loves you. And he's listened. Men and women are also different in the way they reason. Now, you might disagree with me on this one, but males tend to analyze everything in a certain order. Step by step, they come to a conclusion. The female, she comes to a conclusion and doesn't really know how she did it. By the way, neither does her husband. She reasons intuitively. She kind of senses the situation, senses the answer, and he's over here going through it analytically. Step by step, he's working out the answer, and she's already got it. And he can't figure out how she got there. So he's not so sure she's right. Men and women are different in the way they relax. Ladies, what do you do to relax? For the most part, you talk to somebody. You, you talk to relax. Men, what do you do to relax? You shut up. <laughs> you don't want to be talking. Uh, did you hear about the two guys? They were One day, the one said to the other, my wife and I argue a lot. She's very touchy. The least little thing I say can set her off. The other guy said... <laughs> You're lucky, mine's a self-starter. <laughs> men and women are different in the way they relax. Men and women are different in the way they communicate. Men communicate primarily to exchange information, solve problems. Women communicate to share experiences. Now, ladies, when you're sharing your experience with your man, he thinks... Foolishly, ignorantly, he thinks you're asking him to solve something. To a man, a complaint is a request for a solution. Now, to a woman, a complaint's a request to be heard. Emotional support, validation. You also see this difference in the way men give instructions and make requests versus women. Men want to cut right to the heart of an issue. For some strange reason, women don't. For instance, guys, you're driving down the road. Your wife asks you a question. Don't you want to turn at this next corner? Now, is that a question? <laughs> you better not think it's a question. You're going to miss your turn. To you, it's a question, but not to her. I read about a couple in the car, and the wife says, Honey, wouldn't you like to stop and get a soft drink? And he said, no, thanks. And he didn't stop. Now, the result was she was annoyed 
because she felt like she had made a request of him and she was being ignored. And now he's frustrated because he knows she's angry and he doesn't know why. She asked to begin negotiations. He responded by expressing his preference based on her question and that was all there was to it. See, women ask questions to begin negotiations. Men ask questions to get an instant decision. And us guys have this clear bias toward clear instructions and specific requests. We don't take hints well. We don't give them very well either. Men and women are different. And God made it that way. It's not a bad thing. That person who's with you, who is so much like you, but so different from you, is a gift from God to make you more than you can ever be on your own. Thank God today for your spouse. This is not a song that's designed to ask anybody to come to Jesus, but we never want to close a service without that invitation. I forgot what your song is, Dustin. I will rise. I will rise. Not only will we rise, but we will rise to answer that invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Have you got your invitation? Because it is RSVP. The people who go to heaven are the people who prepare to go there. Be sure to prepare today while we stand and sing.